many people flock to our shores out here in West Marin to view gray whales that come up and down the coast in the winter and early spring. But what most folks don't realize is that actually right off the coast here, there are over 26 species of marine mammals that folks might have the opportunity to view if they were actually um, standing out on the beaches or on the cliffs watching for a while. And I think that's just an incredible thing. If you're ever out on the beach and you see a blow, you most likely have seen some type of a whale, and it may not be a gray whale. Um, This time of year is so exciting for the spring and the upwelling that that brings the food web up to the surface here and attracts great whales like blues and humpbacks and minkies from afar to feed. I've been hearing so far that there have been humpbacks sighted off of Chimney Rock and off at Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, so certainly the ocean is taking its course and bringing lots of food to the surface for all these species. So today we're going to learn more about a whale that gets 20 to 30 feet and can weigh 50 to 70 tons. I'm sitting here with John Stern, who has been studying minke whales since 1980. He has also conducted research on killer, pilot, fin, humpback, and gray whales, as well as bottlenose dolphins. He has a bachelor's degree and master's degree in biology and a PhD in wildlife and fishery science. He is a co-author of a book titled Minke Whales, published by Voyager Press. John is also on the board of directors with the American Cetacean Society and a collaborator in the Northeast Pacific Minky Whale Project, which we'll be hearing a lot about today. Among many other accolades, I'm thrilled to welcome John to our show. Welcome, John, to Ocean Currents. Thanks, Jennifer. It's great to be here. So I'd love to hear first, how did you get interested in studying whales? It's definitely a career most young folks might know about early on in life, and I'm curious how you came into this aspect of research. I first heard about whales when I was a wee lad of around seven or eight. My father had uh, brought a book to me from New Zealand, I believe it was from, and he was a ship's captain, and he had these great adventures going to the South Pacific on luxury liners. And so he brought me this book about whales and dolphins, and I learned a lot about whales and dolphins. And then I got the chance to go on a ship for an afternoon, which was humongous to an eight-year-old kid. And so I was very impressed with my father's ship. Um, A few months later, when he was away, I was sitting home by myself watching TV, and on the news there was a report of a ship that was struck and disabled by a whale. And it turned out to be my father's ship, which was hit by a um, sperm whale, it sounded like, that disabled the rudder of this luxury liner, the uh, Mariposa. And the ship was forced to steam about in large circles until a tug could come out from Auckland and um, tow it into shore. So I was pretty impressed with whales from a, a young age. Excellent. So was this was this on the East Coast? No, it was the West Coast. Oh, it was on the West Coast? Yeah. And how did your, your father's ship fare after that? Oh, they just banged it with probably a really big hammer and it fixed it. The, ah. the whale didn't fare so well, unfortunately. Oh, that's too bad. That sounds like it happens a lot, actually. There's a lot of um, whales that we see scars on when we're out at sea and we can imagine with the ship traffic coming in out of San Francisco that there probably are many more whales that might be struck by by boats out there than we might not even know about. Yeah, that's true. A lot of times a, a whale will be struck by a ship and the crew will not even know that they've hit anything until they pull into port. The, sh- the, 
the inertia, the mass, and the velocity of the ship is such that something is what we think is large as a whale is actually quite puny to something the size of a ship. Right. Um, on the East Coast, um, this is a major concern for the highly endangered northern right, northern right whale, um, a species of whale that is disproportionately struck by, um, by ships cruising along the East Coast of the United States. Interesting. So you have been studying minke whales, and um, I'm thrilled to bring you on because I don't know that much about minke whales. I've, I've been very um, interested in blue whales and humpbacks because they're the real common megafauna out here that really get people excited. And in my work as an educator, it's certainly those 100-foot blubbering hunks that uh, really get people excited. And so I'm really interested to learn more about minkies to it today. I'm so glad you came. Um, for the audience out there, can you talk a little bit about uh, the group of whales that minkies are in? They're part of the baleen whale group, which are animals that don't have teeth, but these plates of stringy baleen um, for filtering food. And can you talk a little bit about, um, just a little bit about their natural history? And there's a couple different subspecies of minke whales, I understand. And are those, are these worldwide species? Are they just in one area of the oceans? And can you talk a little bit about those? Sure. Um, minke whales are actually quite closely related to the largest animal, the blue whale, largest animal that ever lived, excuse me, the blue whale, they're just kind of smaller versions of them, physically speaking, anyway. They get to 25, maybe 30 feet uh, long, and they weigh upwards of maybe 10 tons. They're not super behemoth whales that uh, we, we typically think about. Um, they are um, quite common, and they are the most numerous of the baleen whales in the ocean, um, the estimates for the numbers are quite um, variable depending on who you talk to and when the population estimates are made. Um, minke whales come in two different species, it turns out. This is quite recent uh, split. It was thought that there was a single common species of minke whale, but there are actually two. There's one in the southern hemisphere called the southern minke whale, and there's uh, a species in the northern hemisphere called the common minke whale. The main difference between the two species is that the southern minke whale is a bit larger than the uh, common minke whale, and the common minke whale has these characteristic white patches on the pectoral fins or the flippers, much like um, sweatbands you might see on a tennis player, for example. Um, also, another form of minke whale that is found only in the southern hemisphere is called the dwarf minke whale, which is actually quite similar to the common minke whale we see in the northern hemisphere. The number of southern minke whales um, is estimated to be actually kind of unknown. It was thought that there were around a quarter, three quarters of a million minke whales in the southern oceans. The the southern minke whales, but um, these population estimates have been declining over recent years, and it, it's thought that there might be um, perhaps only a quarter of a million of those. Um, in the North Pacific, on the western side of the North Pacific off Japan, there are around 25,000 minke whales. 
off the um, eastern Pacific, that is off of our coast, off the U.S. West Coast, there are thought to be 1,000 minke whales. Wow, that's a really small number compared to uh, some of the other numbers you mentioned. What are some of the reasons you think that the Pacific stock over here on this coast is so much smaller? Well, I've done a lot of thinking about that, and I've come to the conclusion that I'm not really sure. <laughs> um, they've never been hunted commercially off of our coast. Um, native peoples never really took minke whales to any degree. Um, and one would think if they were somehow ecologically closely related to whales like um, blue whales, humpback whales, and fin whales, that there would be more minke whales around, given that these larger species of whales have been hunted to near extinction off of our coast. But with the decline of these larger species, there doesn't seem to be a, an associated increase in the size of the minke whale populations. I think, actually, that minke whales are just part of a different ecological community. They are competing with, if you will, uh, animals like sea lions, birds, um, large predatory fishes, perhaps, and are just part of a whole different food web, if you will, than, the, than their larger cousins. Wow, that's really interesting to think about. I never considered them to not really be a competitor with their own cousins, blue whales, humpbacks, since they share a similar food resource. But it sounds like minkies have a, a wider diversity of food resources than just a blue whale that will eat krill. What are some of the different food resources that minke whales will go after? And is it basically what's available they're going to go for? Or how does that work? Yeah, minke whales in the northern hemisphere pretty much eat whatever is locally abundant at the time. Um, that's true in the North Pacific as well as the North Atlantic. Um, sometimes the fish that they take, like herring, are species of fish that are commercially important, and um, humans get can get sort of uppity about that, and I think we'll talk about that later when we talk about environmental issues concerning minke whales. But um, uh, minke whales will like I said, we'll just eat whatever is locally abundant um, at any particular time. And so since these are a baleen whale and um, humpbacks and blues have this incredible um, behavior where they, well, they do it a couple different ways. Some of them will gulp on the surface, do these lunge feeds with their huge mouths open, and some of them will bubble net and then come up from the bottom. Is there a specific strategy minkies use to feed on these schooling fish? Yeah. Um, minke whales use different feeding strategies depending on where they are, and it turns out depending on who they are. Um, some of the work that my colleagues and I, that have, we've done up in Washington State, we've found in certain areas around the San Juan Islands, we see certain feeding behaviors associated with individuals that hang out in these areas. Um, one feeding method is for a whale to dive, stay underwater for about 10 to 20 minutes, and then it will locate a school of fish, drive it to the surface where the fish is trapped at the air-water interface, and the whale will then open his mouth really wide and come breaching out of the water, engulfing the school of fish as he uh, rises through the surface. There's another group of whales in a different area. And, you know, this is like 
15 miles away from this previous area I just talked about, but the, the whales in this other area are are quite kind of lazy, bless their hearts. They um, swim around in this very random fashion, just called a, a random walk, in fact. Um, it's a specialized random walk, actually, but anyway. <laughs> so they swim around in this very random fashion until... Um, Diving birds such as cormorants and murres and large predatory fishes such as sharks and salmon locate a school of herring, encircle it, compact it, and drive it to the surface, at which point gulls, from what we see at the surface, we see these gulls feeding on these fish that are driven to the surface as well. And the minke whale will just, not too casually, but quite casually, swim over to where these, uh, this school of herring is trapped. Um, we'll see the birds fly up into the air, and the whale come crashing through the school of fish with his mouth open, engulfing most, if not all, of the school. Um, the, the schools that we do see are only about three feet in diameter, so they're not super big. Uh-huh. But um, these whales are quite good at kleptoparasitizing. I was just going to ask you that, um, if this is considered somewhat parasitic behavior. Um, I just want to let um, any listeners that have tuned in know this is Ocean Currents with your host Jennifer Stock, and we're talking with John Stern about minke whales, and we're talking right now about some of the random feeding that minke whales do. And it, the way you're describing it, it was kind of like the whales are on the outskirts watching everyone else to do the hard work of finding the prey and then they're like oh we're gonna go take it and so it's steal from somewhat like um those those uh gulls some gulls do with pelicans the um the name is escaping me right now those, oh right yeah what, do you yeah. know what gull i'm talking about the uh no i, I don't can't remember know. the name of it it'll come it'll come to me in a few minutes but you know it's i also read on your website about um Another this another example of this random feeding is somewhat like if we were blindfolded trying to find our meal at the dinner table. We know the general area where the food is. If we were blindfolded, we could probably find the dining room table. But then to locate your food, you would use your hands to try to find the food. But imagine your food is only the size of a jelly bean. You'd probably um, have your hands overlap each other till you found your food resource, kind of sampling along the way. That was an interesting analogy that I read up on the the North Pacific minke whale website to to compare how whales feed to how we might feed with those senses. Yeah, it's it's actually part of the um, that whole minke whale and Albert Einstein um, stuff I was talking to you about earlier. Aha! Uh, so here it comes, Albert Einstein. <laughs> Albert Einstein. Yeah, it turns out that if you if you follow a minke whale around. And mark its location when it surfaces using some type of global positioning system. You can actually get an idea of how an animal swims about um, as it's searching for food. And we started playing with looking at these tracks that that these whales were doing, and and I started just plotting them on a computer screen and noticed that there was absolutely no pattern that I could discern to these movement, these movements the whales were making. And I started looking at different um, types of movement patterns seen in nature. And, you know, quite quickly I came upon something most, most every um, 
biologist has heard about are these random walks, which are basically um, movement patterns that have uh, frequent changes in direction, almost from one step to the next. The searcher is changing directions in a quite random fashion. And it turned out, after doing some statistical analysis, that indeed these minke whales were doing these specialized types of random walks. And these specialized types of random walks have been researched quite intently by um, physicists um, and chemists. And probably the most famous physicist to do research on this is Albert Einstein, who had this very wonderfully dense but thankfully short book on uh, Brownian motion. Um, and and that, that's what really got me started looking at analyzing whale movement patterns in a, in a different kind of way. And it turned on these, special, these specialized random walks, which are also called levee flights, um, for, named after some French um, statistician. These levee flights turn out to be optimal search strategies for a searcher who doesn't know where his targets are. Um, and it's really kind of interesting because it turns out minke whales do these levee flights and bacteria do these levee flights and paramecium, these single-celled organisms, do these levee flights. Um, wandering albatross do levee flights. Um, electrons being shared between atoms in a molecule, it turns out, do these levee flights. They're really fabulous um, <laughs> movement patterns. And, um, and basically what a levee flight is, is it allows a searcher to cover an area quite densely by moving back and forth, back and forth over and over again until he searched an area quite completely. He may have found food or possibly not. But then what he does is he displaces he or she, I should say, displaces <laughs> some significant distance away from that one little area that he covered quite heavily. And then he begins these frequent direction changes, these random walks once again. And if you compare th that movement pattern to um, any other type of movement pattern, we see that these levee flyers can visit something on the order of one to 10,000 times as many sites as any other type of movement pattern would allow them huh. over, a, a, over a significantly long period of time. But anyway, statistically, they're optimal search strategies, and minke whales do them, and I think that's really cool. <laughs> and plus, I get to, you know, quote Albert Einstein, which is infinitely cool. Yeah. So. Um, I wonder if Albert Einstein has, has figured out minke whales' feeding patterns. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he did. I, I channeled him the other day. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to ask you about um, how do these minke whales adapt? In the last year, we had a delayed upwelling year where the food for the the top part of the food web for seabirds and whales didn't really come about till late in the summer, much later than normal. And a lot of birds decided it wasn't good enough for breeding. We did not see many humpbacks and blues up here. Um, how do the minke whales adapt to that type of a year in the ocean when there's less food around? It, because they're a little bit more adaptive in their food, their prey items, are, do they still fare as well? How, what are you seeing in regards to that type of uh, adaptive behavior? Um, 
their prey is is quite different um, than that of the blue whales and humpback whales. Pretty much, mostly the humpback whales. Humpback whales will feed on schooling bait fish like minke whales will. But minke whales seem to be able to adapt quite well to a change in upwelling seasons. We did, we looked at our um, feeding data from the 1982-83 El Nino season, and there was no significant change from when there was a El Nino from between, from when there was an El Nino, from and then from when there wasn't an El Nino. So it didn't seem to affect their feeding rates at all. Uh, but I think that just belies the behavioral and ecological plasticity of minke whales. They're able to, um, they know a localized habitat really, really well, and they're able to exploit it and exploit its variation in in its oceanographic seasons and variability between years. I want to point out when I mentioned that there's you know, about a thousand minke whales along the west coast of the U.S. What we found is that these individuals are distributed into what appears to be distinct small populations. And by small, I'm talking like 30 individuals. Mm -hmm. And we see these 30 or so individuals in the same place uh, throughout our field season, but we also see them from year to year to year to year. Some individuals come and go, but there's a significant proportion of the individuals in a population that we see over and over and over again. We've seen this in um, the San Juan Islands of Washington State. We saw this um, in Johnstone Strait up in British Columbia. Uh, Saw this off Monterey Bay, south of um, here. And I'm starting a project up in the fall uh, based around the Point Reyes area to look and see if the same type of population patterns are seen here. Interesting. Now I keep a sorry God's supposed to keep my eyes open for whales and sing out every time But I'm lost in the infinite series of the sea As the ship rolls beneath me So roll on deep in dark blue ocean Blue bottomless soul Roll on with me As ten thousand blubber hunters sweep over the in vain, over the in vain. Just roll on deep and dark blue ocean, blue bottomless soul. Roll on with me, roll on. Shoals of whales on the far horizon But I'm too lost Just an absent-minded youth Out to sea 
spend with my thoughts every strange half seen gliding beautiful thing eludes me so roll on deep and dark blue ocean blue bottomless soul roll on with me as ten thousand blubber hunters sweep over the in vain over the in vain just roll on deep and dark blue ocean blue bottomless soul roll on with me roll on Evidently discovered uprising thin seems to me the embodiment of these elusive thoughts that flit through my soul in this enchanted mood my spirit ebbs away like the tide and becomes diffused in time So roll on, deep and dark blue ocean, your blue bottomless soul, roll on with me. As ten thousand blubber hunters sweep over the in vain, over the in vain, just roll on. Deep and dark blue ocean, your blue bottomless soul, roll on with me, and roll on with me, roll on with me, roll on with me, roll on with me. You're listening to Ocean Currents with Jennifer Stock on KWMR at 90.5 FM and 89.3 in Bolinas. I'm here talking with John Stern, a minke whale researcher. And John is starting up a project where they'll be doing some research just off the coast of Point Reyes on minke whales. So, John, I want to come back to that and find out a little bit more about what's this project going to entail and, and how are you going about doing it? Well, basically, it's an extension of work that I've done in Washington State and off Monterey, where uh, we go out in a relatively small boat. What's um, relatively small? <laughs> the, the one I'm using um, here is um, around 17 feet. It's a Boston whaler. It's a nice boat. Um, It'd be nice to get something a bit larger, but I have <laughs> access to a 17-foot boat. But the minke whales um, are, are, uh, can swim quite rapidly, and they change directions quite frequently. So we need a boat that is um, kind of quick. Um, what we try and do is we approach the whale as close as possible to, to take photographs of both left and right sides of the whale. And much like a 
fingerprint, we can ident identify individuals based on the shape of their dorsal fins, the uh, presence and location of scars, as well as um, any coloration um, markings that identify individuals. And so using this, we can come up with this, um, uh, this is a method to census how many whales are actually out there. And we can track whales over time. And then once we identify the individual, we just sort of back off and let him do what he's or she wants to do. And we just um, follow along at a few hundred yards, um, periodically marking the location where the whale surfaces using a global positioning system so we can track a whale. And we see what, what they're doing, wh whether or not they're feeding or if they're lounging around or if they're um, being social, which for the most part they don't seem to be, although they must at some point otherwise. Um, How do you actually locate your minke whales? I, I'm very familiar with, with what humpback blows look like. They're you know big blow and then blue whales, those smokestacks on the horizon, they're huge. But... Minky whales seem to be rather elusive. I I just have not seen one because they must have a different pattern. And since my eye isn't trained for it, I'm really curious. How do you locate minkies? Or is it a chance happening, watching for feeding events on the surface with the birds and other whales? But I'm I'm really curious how you find your <laughs> minky whales out there. Um, well, they don't have a visible blow like you're used to with a humpback or a gray whale um, that you see migrate along the coast. Um, Basically, what we look for is just a, a back of a whale. Um, and it doesn't come, the minke whale, when he surfaces, doesn't show um, much of his back. It is perhaps about 12, 15 feet in length and maybe about two feet in height. So if there's any type of swell or wave action happening, it's really easy to miss whales that are close by. Um, so we don't have a visible boat. We just kind of look for the back. Um, oftentimes when we go out, we turn the motor off so we can um, listen for the blow. And um, on occasion, we have had the primary um, cue. You can't really call it a sighting cue, but the primary cue of noting the presence of a whale um, being the uh, smell of its breath, which after um, con serious consideration, we've... And, and a lot of thought, we finally got a handle on what minky whale breath really smell like. And it's the best way to describe it is um, overcooked broccoli. <laughs> overcooked broccoli. It took us a while. To Do you end up walking away smelling like the breath of the minky whale, much like humpbacks when they blow? It's not just air. No, There's but you don't. a little bit of moisture in the air there. No, you don't really smell like the whale. It, I mean, if you get really close, you do feel a bit funky, you know, because... It's a weird know. smell. Well, it's and there's <laughs> other junk in it as well, I guess. But, um, yeah, minke whales are... One of the other things that's really sort of interesting about minke whales is they can be very curious about slow-moving or stationary boats, and oftentimes they will just come right up to a boat that is sitting there dead in the water, and, um, and they s oftentimes will just swim around that boat for hours as if, huh. you know, trying to figure out... What's that thing in the water? What's that thing in the water? And, Interesting. And we'll stare at people, actually. Really? So they might hang out on the surface a little bit and roll and look up at the surface? Yeah, they will do that um, quite frequently. I mean, we, I've had ones follow my boat along. It's like walking a big dog. It's, oh, my gosh. It's pretty bizarre. And off the Great Barrier Reef, um, 
where these dwarf minke whales seem to overwinter, there is actually a, a swim with the minke whale program where you get in the water, you, um, they, they deploy these ropes off the bow and stern of this, this dive boat, and you, you hang on. You, you don't use scuba tanks, you just snorkel. But you hang on to the rope, and these whales, sometimes 60 at a time, will just come up and just stare at the divers and um, pose for pictures almost. It's pretty huh. amazing. I, I was down for a month a few years ago, and it was just amazing. How long do minkies stay down? Are they deep divers like sperm whales are, or are they, how they're long would they stay down? They're probably not really deep divers. They they um, can stay down 20 minutes or so. Um, we start getting nervous if they've been down for about 10 or 12 minutes. We, mm. we get nervous because we were afraid we've lost them, which it's quite easy to do. That's probably from my experience in just recreational wildlife watching trips when someone has seen, said they saw a minky whale. By the time I get there, it's, it's gone. They're, they don't, I just haven't seen them stick around too often around uh, recreational boats, but I definitely haven't been out there as much as you are. Yep. Um, yeah. last, last summer, we, we followed a whale around for eight hours. Huh. Walking the dog. I see how yeah. it is. <laughs> <How these laughs> work, 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 work. <laughs> So, um, do minke whales migrate? Do we know where they breed? And I guess since there's these different stocks in the southern hemisphere and the northern hemisphere and here on the North Pacific coast here, do we have an idea of where minke whales go to breed? No. Okay. <laughs> okay, um, weird. <laughs> actually, the evidence for migration in minke whales is um, quite scant. It's It's only from the record of two whales that were um, marked in the Antarctic and then recaptured um, off Brazil. Um, all wow. migration is, other than, that is, other than that, is just inferred based on you see them a lot certain times of the year and then you don't see them very much at other times of the year. Um, off the coast here, minke whales are seen year-round. So I'm thinking that these whales off Point Reyes are perhaps a population of year-round residents, and that's going to be one of the main thrusts of this research is going to be going out year-round looking to see if uh, the same individuals are present year-round. Um, one of the interesting things when I first started working off Monterey um, Bay was that I had heard reports of dozens and dozens and hundreds of minke whales off the coast, and I, I got really excited about that. I'd spent five years working in Washington State where we saw very few individuals. Um, but this report off Monterey came from a land station where they said they would see minke whales going by this one location um, many times a day. So they assumed this would be, was a lot of different individuals, but when I got out in a boat and actually tracked individuals and took pictures and was able to identify individuals, I found it was, you know, the same few whales over and over again swimming back and forth in front of this land station. So it seemed like there were lots of whales, but there actually really weren't. That's, a, that's amazing. That's just amazing to think that they're hanging out there and we just can't see them, but they're there oh, doing their thing back and forth all over the place. But Unlike on land, we just can't see them that well. So I think that's what makes researching these these animals so unique and 
and pretty exciting at the same time. Um, so all whales, all marine mammals are protected in the U.S. waters under the Endangered Species Act and the Marine Mammal Protection Act. But I know minke whales are a target species for some countries that hunt whales. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about um, which countries are hunting whales and for what purposes and what type of regulation exists for these species. Um, the the regulations are uh, based on some international agreements set up through an organization out of England called the International Whaling Commission, and or the IWC. And the IWC was set up in 1946 to regulate commercial whaling. Um, they didn't really do that great of a job of it because there was just wholesale slaughter of of uh, most whale species in the southern hemisphere. The minke whale was um, spared because of its small size. It just wasn't of interest to whalers. But now with the decline of larger species of whales like blue whales and humpbacks and fin whales in the southern oceans as well as the North Pacific and North Atlantic, more and more countries that are interested in whaling are turning their sites on minke whales. Um, the The countries that are actively engaged in minke whaling are um, Japan, Norway, Iceland, Denmark, and Denmark only because they're, uh, because Greenland is one of their territories. Um, Korea is, is whaling minke whale as well. Um, now, under the um, International Whaling Commission, there, commercial whaling has been halted since 1986. There's been a moratorium in place but Japan has filed a, um, a permit application to allow scientific whaling to take place. And this is where they kill a certain number of minke whales per year to try and find out something about the biology of these animals, like what they're eating, um, how old they get to be, at what age they reach, sexual maturity, um, those types of population level parameters. But there seems that there are many other ways to study these whales. Are they truly doing research? I've heard a lot of controversy about uh, the countries that are claiming that they're doing scientific research. And I've been reading in the news that Japan does more than just research with their um, the minkies that they hunt. Yeah, they, well, there's, there's also there's research, and then there's like good research, and there's bad research. And and there's been a lot of concern about the the Japanese uh, whale research program in that it's not really providing um, useful information, useful in the context of managing a whale stock like they say they wish to do. Um, and certainly to fund their whale research program, um, Japan sells um, minke whale, the minke whale uh, byproduct, the meat, um, and blubber from the whales that they kill to sort of subsidize the whaling fleet and um, the people that work in the industry. Um, one of the things that you got to think about here is that a lot of countries like Japan, Norway, Iceland, Greenland, they all have a tradition of hunting whales in their coastal waters. 
and that is what they're claiming they are doing now. And, and to a degree, I guess that's, that's kind of true. Um, but one of the, the big issues is that um, we're not really sure how many whales exactly are in these populations, nor do we, do we know if the populations are fragmented into smaller subpopulations like we seem to be seeing off the west coast of the United States. Um, and certain parts of um, the UK, off the British Isles, for example. Um, so we don't really know the size of the population that is being hunted, and that's a potential problem. Um, the recent International Whaling Commission meeting that was held in St. Kitts in the West Indies um, was the first meeting in several decades where the pro-whaling countries held a numerical majority in terms of the vote, potential um, votes. This was a meeting that just took place recently. Yeah, it was with a just a few weeks, weeks ago. ago. Yeah. I'm just going to pause for a second. You're listening to KWMR and Point Reyes Station at 90.5 FM, and you're listening to Ocean Currents with Jennifer Stock, and we're talking with John Stern about minke whales. Um, so we were just talking about potential uh, the the whaling the International Whaling Commission meeting that just took place, and I'm curious, with St. Kitts, are there a lot of whales? Is this a nation that really has an in, an interest in whaling? It's a very small area. How did they get on the International Whaling Commission? <laughs> yeah, they um, well they they do have humpbacks that come into their water seasonally, and they will on occasion take a whale or two. Um, one of the um, uh, things that the conservation community has really sort of latched onto is that a large number of recent um, additions to the International Whaling Commission are countries that um, are either landlocked or have never whaled historically or currently, um, and it appears that they have been sort of talked into joining the International Whaling Commission by uh, Japan. That is, uh, you know, I don't know if that's true or not, and there's, you know, uh, but that has certainly been implied for a number of different countries. Um, so Japan has been accused of essentially buying votes on the International Whaling Commission. Um, interestingly, as I mentioned, you know, this is the first time in several decades that pro-whalers have had a voting majority, but um, all of the resolutions put forth by pro-whaling countries lost the vote, except for one. One resolution, it's called the St. Kitts Nevis Resolution. Nevis is, Nevis is a neighboring island of St. Kitts. But um, this resolution calls for the normalization of the International Whaling Commission, which is taken to mean that the International Whaling Commission has a finite amount of time to get back to its original mandate, which is the managing of killing whales. Um, and it's thought that the Conservation Committee and the Committee for um, Humane Killing Methods are going to really take a back seat or actually get stuck in the trunk, I guess, metaphorically speaking, of the International Whaling Commission. And Japan and Norway really want to get back to the job of managing whales, and this may be a re the first step in a return to commercial whaling. 
That is absolutely frightening to me, um, just because I grew up in the age of protecting the whales, and and when the International Whaling Commission um, said 1986 started, they allowed the moratorium to take place on killing. There was a, a somewhat of a relief, it sounds like, and I've just been surprised to hear that this is happening, and there hasn't been a whole lot in the news about this, and it's a huge impact that could take place um, if further efforts go down the road. What exactly does it mean after this first resolution was passed? What What are the next steps that would have to take place, and um, what does the rest of the commission do in regards to that decision? I'm not so sure exactly how they're uh, processes work for making regulations. Right. Um, the International Whaling Commission has no legal teeth. It makes, it passes resolutions and and passes recommendations. But you know, if a country wants to do something, um, it can very well go do that. Japan has threatened um, to leave the International Whaling Commission. Um, Norway, in fact, began commercial whaling again a few years ago. On a on a limited scale, um, and not much was made about that in the in the press. So there's not a whole lot of enforcement. I no. take it no. there's no enforcement at all. Except I know there's organizations that are out there trying to <coughs> excuse me prevent more take. The Sea Shepherd Society and Greenpeace have been active in doing that, but there's really no legal regulation. Well, there are um, amendments to the that the U.S. has that they can. Um, they do have some type of legal recourse where they can um, decide not to import um, goods and services from countries that are doing things that the U.S. disagrees with. The Pelley Amendment is one such mm-hmm. is one such law that allows the president to to sort of um, try and uh, talk a country into sort of coming back to, into line with more of what the international community is in line with in terms of of conservation efforts. Um, but it's there's, there's a real turning point, I think, in the conservation community. Um, there are a bunch of um, conservation groups represented at the IWC meeting, and we had a, um, an emergency meeting after this St. Kitts resolution talking about what to do next. I mean, do we have a bunch of small smaller entities working on the same problem or do we sort of get together on this common um, issue and I think we're looking more at at presenting sort of a united front. Um, the next International Whaling Commission is on U.S. soil. It's in Anchorage, Alaska and um, there is an aboriginal hunt of bowhead whales that occurs um, by the Inuit hunters up in Point Barrow and Point Hope in um, in Alaska, and these quotas are up for renegotiation this coming year. So it's really going to be interesting to see what the U.S. delegation does and what the Japanese delegation does in response to these quotas and what what Japan and Norway may want to do in terms of increasing their quotas for minke whales, as well as um, endangered humpback and fin whales, both species Japan has begun taking again. And that's one of the really frightening things is that um, Japan is now once again turning their harpoons to um, species like fin and humpback whales that 
were really seriously depleted um, in the 20th century. And they're not necessarily back up yet in their populations, so they don't know. That's pretty scary. And one one of the other things that is really sort of an bothersome to me as a as an ecologist is is Japan is is really making a point of saying that for the nutritional security of nations of the world, whales need to be killed because they are eating all the fish. Oh, interesting. Um, <laughs> they don't really present much in terms of data nor any type of model to support that contention. And in fact, there have been many studies that have been done that show that marine mammals and whales in particular have much less effect on fish stocks than humans. Um, in, fas- in fact, fish have more of an impact on fish stocks than, than whales do. So this, this is going to be sort of one of my pet little projects that I'm working on, um, looking at how much the, pop- the world's population of fish-eating whales may actually take in proportion to what uh, human fisheries are like. Interesting. Uh, it's the, uh, does the U.S. bring any of this science to the table since there's been so much research in the U.S., particularly within NOAA, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, about that? I mean, what can they bring to the table in regards to supporting um, evidence that, indeed, humans have more impact on populations of fish than whales do? Well, I, I think um, the, the U.S. can bring considerable uh, science base to the table. I, I think at the last IWC meeting, everybody was kind of dumbfounded that Japan was was really hitting on the fact that, or hitting on the statement that, you know, it's the whale's fault that they don't have enough tuna to eat or something like that. So um, w- once again, this is this is a relatively new development and, and people in the conservation and science communities are talking about what to do next. Um, well, we're coming close to the end of the show, John, and I'm curious if there are any websites or any action that you would recommend people that want to learn more about this topic or want to get involved. Um, do, is there anything you can recommend people to do right now? Because there's been a little bit in the news about it, and I'm curious. I'm sure people would like to learn more. Do you have any recommendations? Yeah, I would say um, there's uh, websites for the American Cetacean Society. It's ACS Online. That's one word or whatever it is. ACSonline.org. There's the Whale and Dolphin Conservation Society. They have a really nice website out. Um, I would also uh, urge that people start looking into these issues and prepare to, to contact their, their representatives um, about the next International Whaling Commission meeting. Um, I'm going to do my best to, to put out some type of statements through the American Cetacean Society to let people know what they can do as um, time gets closer to the IWC meeting. Excellent. I hope that you'll pass some of that information on to me so we can oh, absolutely. bring it back to the show. And I hope we'll be able to bring you back um, once the minke whale research is up and running and hear some updates from the field from you. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and giving us some background on this, this little whale that 
doesn't get as much credit as blue, big blue whales do, but they're right out here and right off our coast. And who knows if you're out at the coast and you see lots of flurry acti activity happening on the surface of the water with birds attacking the water, you may have the opportunity to see a whale yourself.